into Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And as you turn to Luke chapter 18, uh, we're picking up where we left off last week, which was Jesus' command for us to pray persistently for justice with hope. And as we talked about last week, Jesus calls us to do that for kind of two big reasons. The first was what we pray for regularly has a profound impact on the way that we view God and the way that we see the world and the way that we see our neighbors and consequently what the possibilities of our life with Jesus together are as his people, the way we view those possibilities and live out those possibilities. And we talked about how Jesus calls us to pray specifically for justice because as we do so, we will look for where justice is in the world, and we'll see God's presence there. And we'll also uh, notice where God needs to bring justice so that we can pray for God to do that, which will cause us to look for it, which will cause us to pray for it. And so over time, our hearts will be shaped by justice. That's that virtuous cycle that we talked about. Uh, the other thing we talked about is how justice is basic to neighbor love. Remember, in the Bible, Justice is not primarily about punishment. Most frequently, justice is about restoration and peace and a flourishing life together as a human community with God. Remember Micah 4, verse 4, the picture of the Messiah's just kingdom is one where everyone is under their vine and fig tree together. Everyone has a full, joyous, peaceful life together. And that's why when we pray for justice and when we do justice, we're praying for and we're practicing things that seek the restoration of life and the reconciliation of relationships and the peace and the flourishing and the wholeness of human community in the gospel of Jesus. And you might remember that Jesus closed that discussion with a question. Uh, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And that question is designed to make us say, yes, Jesus, you will. Uh, you will find us here at Grace praying for justice. You will find us working for justice in your name. We are going to be that kind of people. But now after this whole discussion, Jesus has another parable about justice. Jesus knows that as we grow as seekers of justice and as doers of justice and as prayers of justice, we will be tempted to turn doing justice into a reputational trophy to be won rather than relationships to be enjoyed. We will be tempted to make justice be basically about us and not about others. Well, how can we tell if we've fallen into that temptation? The answer because this is a series on prayer, is by our prayers. One way that kind of heart will reveal itself is the way that we pray for other people. And that's what our passage is about this morning. My friends, prayer not only shapes our hearts, it also reveals our hearts. Uh, what does our love for our neighbor really look like? What is the true aim of our doing justice? Are we doing it and seeking it for Jesus' purposes or for our own purposes? Jesus told this parable this morning to help us think about these questions. 
So let's do that. Uh, this parable is pretty famous. There's two characters. You'll recognize them, the Pharisee and the tax collector. We'll first talk about the Pharisee's prayer, then we'll talk about the tax collector's prayer, and then we'll end with some reflections on what Jesus means when he says the humble prayer, the tax collector went home justified and exalted. Uh, so Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, let's read and pray, and then we'll reflect more on this. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This farther reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given this word to us so that we can learn um, how prayer exposes what's going on in our hearts so that uh, we can have our hearts be more and more conformed to the will of our Savior. Lord, we want to be a people who are humble and uh, who are concerned with our relationship with each other and with you and uh, who know that we need you. Uh, but Father, we know that this humility will not be born in our hearts unless your spirit blesses the word to us. So Father, please now, through your spirit, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to uh, respond and receive your word. But Father, may the Words in my mouth is your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word may all now be pleasing in your sight, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said before we read, Jesus has just, just finished talking about praying for justice, and you can kind of imagine once he's done, Jesus is looking around at the crowd, and he's seeing some people who were not only applauding themselves for already praying for and pursuing justice, which, by the way, is not itself bad. It's not wrong to be happy that you were obeying Jesus and to discover that you've been doing something right and that you were being obedient. That's not wrong, but you can imagine that as Jesus is looking around and seeing that, he's also seeing people who are saying, at least in their hearts and probably revealing in their facial expressions a little bit, like, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what we should be doing. That's what I do. Now maybe people will understand how wise I am and how much they should have been listening to me all these years. And if you want to see what that looks like, just go onto the social medias and watch people dunk on each other all the time and one-up each other on all their pious piety and all their love of Jesus. I love Jesus more than you because I do this and you don't do that. That's what that looks like. And then along with them, maybe Jesus also saw some people saying to themselves, you know what? Like, I'm going to rededicate myself to praying for justice because after all, if, if I don't do it, who will? Uh, certainly not that guy. Am I right? 
See, Jesus can already see that there are people facing the temptation and falling to the temptation of turning justice into a performance that seeks praise from other people rather than the blessing of other people. Uh, Justice was becoming for some of them about them and not about their neighbor. Now, we don't know who all Jesus saw facing this temptation. Obviously, it wasn't everyone because Luke says Jesus told this parable specifically to some of them. Not everyone who heard Jesus' words fell to this temptation or was even tempted at that particular time to do this, but some were. Who in that crowd? We don't know. Maybe it was just the Pharisees, but I doubt it. I doubt it was even all the Pharisees. I mean, some of them, sure. But don't you think there would have been people in the crowds who weren't Pharisees who would have faced this temptation? Uh, Given what we know about the disciples and about us as disciples, don't you think some of them would have been facing this temptation? I certainly do. And Jesus loves all of them. And so he tells this story, which is both funny and sobering. It's, it's the kind of thing that we need if we're going to reflect on whether our hearts are kneeling before God and standing with our neighbor, or if they're standing with God looking down on our neighbor. Uh, now, the story hinges on the fact that in ancient temple worship and in ancient synagogue worship, uh, you prayed out loud. And everyone who heard Jesus' parable had this experience of being surrounded by other people in church and actually in modern synagogue worship. This is how it's done as well. You're all standing together. You're all standing next to each other, closer than you all are. And you're all praying out loud to Jesus at the same time. (laughs) So with that context in mind, Jesus looks at this crowd and without calling anyone out specifically, he tells the story. Verse 10, he says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now, these are two different kinds of people in ancient Israel. The Pharisees are actually highly respected because they cared about faith, and they cared about worship, and they cared about the Bible. They cared about evangelism. Remember, Jesus himself said that they would travel miles to win one convert. So the Pharisees as a group were a renewal movement within God's people, and they were uh, devoted to encouraging people to worship and to pray and to memorize the Bible and to attend church and to obey Scripture. So the modern equivalent to the Pharisee in our story, if you wanted to think about sort of the way the culture thought about them, would be me as a pastor and you all who are here every Sunday morning. And that's important for a bunch of reasons, both for introspective reasons, but also because uh, as people who are regular churchgoers, we know and we care about the way the Bible is used and about the way people come to worship. We understand the way we want to show show up at church and the way we want other people to show show up at church. We know what we want worship to be like and to feel like, and we know how to practice those things, even when we don't feel like it, right? We know how to show up and say, I may not like it today, but I'm here and I'm going to do my best to like bring faithful presence to this congregation because I want to worship Jesus with Jesus's people. So imagine as Jesus goes on with that context, how ridiculous the story sounds. When the Pharisee enters, 
he skips all the rows of chairs. He doesn't go and stand with the people. He walks all the way up to the front of the sanctuary where he stands by himself. He's standing alone. And that's going to make everyone wonder, like, why is he up there? Why is he not sitting back here with us? And he's well known to the congregation. He's a Pharisee. He's there every Sunday. He's there every time the church doors are open. That's who he is. He's a Pharisee. And if some longtime respected member of our church randomly stood up and walked up here to the front by the communion table, all of us would be asking, like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why are you not sitting down in your normal spot? Like, why are you up there? And then just imagine, as we're watching this longtime church member stand up in front, this comes out of his mouth. Verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. You can just kind of imagine him looking around at all of you. Not at me, of course, but at you. Uh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Extortioners, he gestures, gestures this way. Unjust people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, oh Lord. Do you get the humor now? Can you just imagine if that happened? Can you imagine if I, as a pastor, a longtime congregant, got up in front and did that? We would all be so mad. <laughs> now, why would we be mad? This is important. First, we'd be mad, I hope obviously, because this guy has turned acts of faithfulness to Jesus, things like worship and prayer, fasting and tithing and fellowship, into trophies that he could use to purchase Jesus' approval and try to make Jesus love him more than us. He's convinced of his own righteousness. And that's actually what the, the text says. It doesn't say that the, they trusted in their own righteousness. It says they were persuaded or convinced that they were righteous. And by the way, tithing and fasting, that's actually part of justice in the Bible. Uh, the food that you did not eat while you were fasting, that would be given to the poor. Ties were used to help the poor and the immigrant and the refugee become integrated into society. So these are acts of justice. They were supposed to be aimed at peace and human flourishing. That's why the Pharisee mentions them in the story. They were supposed to be acts of love. Love for God and love for neighbor. But that's another reason why we'd all be so mad. All the good things this guy has done with us all the good things he's done for us he didn't do because he loved us he didn't do it because he cared about us he did it because he thinks he's better than us and he wants us now to know that we would be mad because as jesus noticed we're being looked down on with contempt and then third i hope we would be mad because of the way he throws the tax collector into this list so the people he lists first, that's kind of just the standard list of sinners. We have our own standard list of sinners when we want to talk about bad people, right? Like the drug addicts and the gangbangers or whatever, the murderers and the thieves. And we have our own list. This is just a standard list in Jesus' day, which would have included everyone in the sanctuary because he uses the word unjust, which are just people who've ever committed any injustice ever, any sin ever. That would be all of us. But then he specifically throws a tax collector in who walked into church with him into this list. This tax collector. The guy who walked in with him. 
Now, the thing about the tax collector is it's not a sin to be a tax collector, but it was incredibly socially unpopular. Tax collectors were widely considered to be traitors. They were widely distrusted as an occupation. They were considered as a group to be liars and thieves. So if you were a tax collector, you were unpopular, you were distrusted, and you were given a wide social berth. You didn't have a lot of friends, most likely from when you grew up in your small Jewish town. You probably had a lot of broken relationships because of the occupation that you chose to take. You would walk into a grocery store and some people might say hi, but a lot of people would give you some space and distance. It's that kind of occupation. So when this Pharisee ends this list by saying, even like this tax collector, what he's doing is he is taking the most unpopular person in the, in the room and he's pointing him out to everyone in church and he's saying, boy, I'm so glad I'm not like this guy. Am I right, guys? Yeah, because no one wants to be him. Aren't we all glad we're not like him? And I would like to think that we would all be angry at the fact that not only does this Pharisee's prayer reveal that he thinks he's better than all of us, that he's turned worship into a trophy to hold before Jesus, but he's also turned worship attendance into an opportunity to shame someone and make them feel unwelcome in the house of God. Now, the great irony and even some of the humor of all this is that while the Pharisee is congratulating himself for being so just, his prayer reveals an unjust heart. He is not seeking justice. He isn't seeking peace. He's not seeking reconciliation. He isn't working toward building relationships of love and human flourishing. He's not including the tax collector in his prayers in a way that wants him to be drawn into the community. In this story, the way he prays reveals his heart to everyone, hopefully to him, but certainly to the entire congregation and to God. And that leads us then to the tax collector. Now, the Pharisee, now like the Pharisee, I should say, the tax collector is also standing by himself, but not up front. No, he stands away from the congregation because he doesn't feel like he belongs. And frankly, the congregation's probably not made him feel like he belongs. Now, uh, and I say that because, well, you know, there might be some feelings of being alienated from God that have brought him to the back of the church. He's still at the temple. But very clearly, given everything I've said, like he feels alienated from God's people. Again, to make this modern, this is the distrusted, unpopular man who shows up. Uh, this is the, maybe, it's the lawyer who is known for suing people for the smallest infractions and taking their money so that he can enrich himself. People don't trust him. People think he's a liar. People think he uses his power to... Uh, suppress and oppress people. That is not a perfect parallel, but it gets kind of close. This is this distrusted, unpopular man who shows up and we see him and he doesn't sit with any of us in the sanctuary. No, this is the man who sits on the bench by himself in the foyer. 
And because he's so unpopular and we're so scared of him, we swallow our guilty feelings because none of us actually want to be with him because we don't want to draw his attention to ourselves because we don't want to become the object of his next lawsuit or the object of his next tax, um, tax assessments. We don't trust him. So we let him be by himself in the back. But then because this is a context where all of us pray out loud, we hear him pray. And as we hear him pray, we look behind us and we see that his face is bent down toward the ground. It's not up to heaven. Uh, in Jesus' day, prayers were not only made out loud, it was also normally practiced, or one of the normal practices of, uh, of prayer was to stand with your head raised and your arms out in a receiving fashion. But as we turn around, we don't see him looking up to God, arms out to receive God's blessing. We see him looking down. And like with us, that is a sign of guilt, sign of sadness, shame, and uncertainty. When you don't know the way someone's going to respond, you're not looking them in the eye, are you? You're looking down at the ground. He's saying, I'm here, but I'm afraid that God won't answer my prayer. I'm afraid God won't perform acts of reconciling justice for me. And so we see this distrusted member of our community approaching God with humility. And with mourning, Jesus tells us the tax collector was beating his breast. So kids, that means he's slamming his hand against his chest. And that is a common way that people grieve when they are overwhelmed with sorrow. And in Jesus' day, that's how mourners would regularly express grief. That was a culturally normal way of getting the sadness out. And so we see this tax collector standing in a way that shows his fear that God may not answer his prayers. We see him overcome by sadness. And then we learn it's not because someone he loved has died and he's come to mourn him. It's because he wants God's mercy. We hear him cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I need to point out something because it doesn't show up in translation so well. There's different words for mercy. The word he chooses there means not just the mercy of forgiveness, not just the withholding of punishment, but of reconciliation, of bringing back together what has been broken, the mercy of relational repair. He wants the mercy of repaired friendships. He wants his family restored. He wants God's community to be hospitable to him and to welcome him in as a member and maybe even as a friend. This is a prayer, beloved, for justice. God, heal my relationships. Heal it with you. Heal it with my family. Heal it with my friends, my community, my church, my neighbors. Why? Because I am a sinner and I've sinned against you and I've sinned against them and I have broken relationships. I know I have hurt people and I need forgiveness and I need reconciliation. Lord, I need mercy. Please help me. Isn't it amazing how Jesus' story goes from humorous to humbling and sobering? Just a few sentences. Um, but with those in mind now, now we can talk about verse 14 and what Jesus means when he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, I know normally we think of this statement in this particular parable as 
being about uh, eternal justification, being made right with God through the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I've preached this parable this way, I know. Uh, but I have come to see, I don't, I don't think the story is actually about our eternal life with God in heaven, at least not in the first instance. I think it's in the first instance, it's about our life with God and his people here below. This is the righteousness of relationships that are made whole today through God's forgiveness and through the people of God's forgiveness and through the justification of reconciliation, relationships that have been reformed through the mercy of God here below. Jesus is saying that because of this prayer, which the church would have heard, the tax collector went home with God-given, God-blessed, restored relationships with the people at the church. Because the people hearing this prayer heard his heart, that he wanted to be forgiven by them and loved by them and forgiven by God and loved by God, and that he wanted to live with them in reconciled relationships. He wanted a just life created by the mercy of forgiveness and sustained by the mercy of love, which covers a multitude of sins. And as the worshipers heard this desire, they gave it to him. They did justice in the name of Jesus. That's why he goes down to his house justified, not away in, the, in the, the location where people go in Luke's gospel after they encounter Jesus or in stories is important. Sometimes they go away, they go off. He went home. And again, what is justice about? It's about flourishing at home <laughs> with your family and your friends and your neighbors. But the Pharisee in the story, if he walked in justified, that is experiencing the righteousness of whole relationships among God's people. And again, you can imagine, you know, he comes in. Uh, what's a good, what's a name we don't have in here? You see Robert. There's no Robert in this room, I don't think. Robert comes in. Hey, Robert, how you doing? Oh, good to see you, blah, blah, blah. Lord, thank you that I'm better than all these people. Robert's not going home justified. <laughs> what's going to happen to Robert is someone, probably me because it's my job, is going to go to Robert and I'm going to say, dude. Uh, you sinned against everyone in church and Jesus and everyone's mad at you. <laughs> you have got to go ask forgiveness. You need to become re-justified to God's people, re-reconciled. He did not go home justified. He needs to go fix that particular problem. Uh, and to drive this relationship Drive this point home, Jesus ends with one of his favorite phrases. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And here again, Jesus isn't talking, I think, about a person's eternal relationship with God in heaven, but about the relationship with God on earth. The one who seeks restoration and who begins that search with humility, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Please be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. Begins it with confession. They will be exalted. And exalted just means publicly celebrated by the people around him, like the prodigal when he returned home to the father, or as the story ends, the tax collector when he goes home and people go, what do we name him? Frank? Robert? Robert. Robert, I'm so glad that like 
you want to be forgiven. I will forgive you. I'm so excited for the prayer you prayed and for the decision you've made and the goal you have. Like, I want to journey with you together. That's what exaltation means in this story. So I want to draw this to a close by answering two questions. First, why does Jesus make this point with a parable? Why not just like call people out directly? Why didn't Jesus just look at the crowd and be like, hey, you know, Peter's often screwing up. Peter, stop it. I can see your heart. Stop sinning. Um, why make it with a parable? And then secondly, and related, why center this parable around the act of prayer and not around some other kind of action? So I think Jesus uses a parable told to everyone because telling a story, especially one that pulls a committed worshiper like a Pharisee or like a pastor or an elder, so far out of proportion, it helps us see how ridiculous looking down on people is, but also how dangerous and damaging it is. Like this is not a small problem that Jesus exposes in this man's prayer. And by using this story, he helps give us then the skills we need to ask as his people if we are going to interrogate, that is question, our own hearts and evaluate our own actions. If we are going to be able to ask, am I seeking justification or self-justification? Am I practicing righteousness for my neighbor's good and God's glory or for my own self-righteous pursuits and my own reputation among my community? And related to that is why then Jesus uses prayer as the context for this exposure. And it, it seems to me that Jesus knows that the way we pray about others, and especially the way we pray with others and for others, can reveal much more about our hearts than we would otherwise understand. We all know how to put a good front on in front of other people and how to kind of couch our words in a way that can hide what's really going on. But when you stand before God in prayer and you're speaking from the heart, the veil can be removed. And sometimes we can get a glimpse of what's really going on in our heart. And so by using prayer as a context for the story, Jesus is showing us that one way to examine our hearts is by paying attention to the way we pray for others and the way we even pray with others. Are we bringing them to God because we're seeking reconciliation or recognition? Are we bringing them to God because we want mercy for them or because we want to be respected by the broader community? Uh, is it performance or is it uh, about bringing Jesus into their life? Are we praying in a way that would shame others into doing what we want or in a way that invites others into a life of faithful obedience to God? And so just to bring this back to the beginning of our series, this kind of rec reflection on prayer requires the practice of silence and stillness with God. After we're done praying for someone, especially if we're in conflict with them, it's good to sit in silence with Jesus because sometimes the Holy Spirit will take that opportunity to make us aware of how our prayers are maybe not so just. And uh, I speak from experience. Here's an example from my own life. Uh, last year, my kids and I had an argument about something in the morning, and I don't remember what it was. Uh, now, our practice as a family is, you know, Hillary's gone off to work, and it's just me and the kids, and we get together and we pray before I take them to school. And, of course, each of us takes turns praying out loud. And in my prayer to Jesus, both kids on each side, on the couch, 
I pray out loud something like, Lord, help them not to be so, like, whatever it was. Be more kind. Listen to me better, whatever, whatever it was. Uh, this was a while ago, so I don't remember the exact details, and I've already made things right with my kids. But I, that's the prayer I prayed. And now the problem with that prayer, obviously, as I hope you already know, wasn't that I wanted my kids to behave or to reflect Jesus better. The problem was that like the Pharisee in the story, I had just used prayer to shame and control my children in the name of Jesus and make myself look good to them. And I know that because later that day, by myself after lunch, when I pray again for all of you and the family, I'm praying and I after I finish praying, I pray kind of a similar prayer for my kids, and I'm sitting in silence with Jesus after I'm all done for about a minute, as is my normal practice. And in that silence with my Savior, the Holy Spirit, I don't know who else to say it because it has to have been him, brought to mind what I prayed for, how I prayed for it, and with that remembrance, the strong, heart-wrenching convic conviction that I had deeply sinned against Jesus and against my children, who Jesus says, as we're going to talk about next week, to not hinder when they want to come into his presence. Beloved, my heart that morning was wrong. My words were wrong. The timing was wrong. I had sinned. And like the Pharisee, after I dropped my kids off at school, I knew that I did not go home justified with my children. And so I had to seek forgiveness. I had to repent of turning a prayer of righteousness, in quotes, into a prayer of self-righteousness. I had to ask Jesus to teach me how to prayerfully practice justice and to pray for justice in a way that seeks relational peace on Jesus' terms, not on my own terms, and in Jesus' time, not my own time. And by the way, the text I have been reading that the Holy Spirit used to produce the conviction was this one. See, by making it be big and stark, Jesus helps us see the small but real ways that we can turn prayers for justice into prayers for self-justification, where we can use prayer as a weapon and not as a welcome into the kingdom of God. And so, my friends, I hope this morning that we will take some time and we will reflect on our prayers, how we pray for each other, how we pray for our neighbors, for our, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our uh, in-laws, what we say when we pray for each other, and especially how we pray when there's conflict or injustice involved, so that our hearts will not fall into this temptation, and so that if we discover that we already have fallen to this temptation, that we will repent and practice the justice of seeking forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus' name. Because in this way, our hearts will be shaped by the justice that Jesus seeks peace and wholeness and life. And we will come to see that our Lord's words to us about being with us and working out his resurrection life, about making broken things whole and dead things alive, is not an empty word of promise, but is real and true and for us. Amen? Let's pray together.
Father, we want to do justice, and we want to love mercy, and we want to walk humbly with you. And we want to resist the temptation to turn this way of life into self-righteous pride that treats others with contempt. And so, Father, as we pray to you, would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us notice if our prayers are revealing hearts that have fallen into this temptation? And if so, would you help us to repent by praying for the mercy of the gospel to come not only to others, but also to us, who are each the chief of sinners, so that the work of Christ's resurrection power would be present in our lives, and that we might go home justified to each other through the work of Jesus. And we ask this in the name of our faithful and good Savior. Amen. Uh, let's stand and sing in response.